The title of today's message is The Facts of Life Concerning Sin Denial, Part 4. It was given during the morning service on July 31, 2022 at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois by Pastor John Stevens. For the sake of those listening by way of recording, last Sunday of the month, Titus chapter 2 is the passage we will get to eventually. Series title, Love of Christ. Subseries under that is the Marks of Godliness. Mark number 3, the godly believer denies ungodliness. In your introduction, in your note sheet, those that are here present this morning, must one obey insane rules? My whole family uh, on my side is, uh, well, born, first gener- I'm first generation uh, American, I'm Canadian, my family's Canadian. Um, my parents were born, and all my family were raised in the Toronto area, and um, my dad and mom moved to Chicago before I was born, before any of us three, Dave, Jewel, and myself were born, and we were born as first-generation Americans, um, which you know. Those of you that have been around for a long time know I've shared that before. You know how it is uh, when you're of a certain ethnic or racial persuasion, you have the right, so to speak, to criticize your own race or ethnicity. I suppose that's what I've heard anyways, so I think I can say some bad things about our crazy friends upstairs. There's nobody in the attic. I'm referring to Canada, okay, just so you understand. People upstairs, Canada. They have some very strange rules in various providences in Canada. Some are local, some are national. And they're still on the books today. For instance, it's illegal to lock your vehicle doors in Church Hill, Manitoba. You'll get ticketed. Police go around and pull on the door handles. If they're locked, tickets. Reason? They passed that law just in case somebody needs to run and hide in a vehicle from a rampaging polo bear. Nuts. Did you know, I'm sure you did and it's kept you awake at night, you can't keep a cow as a pet in Newfoundland? It is explicitly against the law in Alberta, Canada, to set someone else's wooden leg on fire. Must be a terrible problem up there. Did you know that pretending to be a foreigner is against the law in Quebec? This one is extremely appropriate and practical. You may not wear a snake on your shoulders in public in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Hmm. Crazy. But it isn't just local. 
How about the beloved Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada? Last week announced plans to cut fertilizer use by 30% over the next eight years. Farmers, if they don't follow that rule, will be fined and penalized. Thousands of farmers currently today are in an uproar protesting and rioting over that. It basically spells the doom to the farmlands of Canada and potential starvation is great. Crazy. And lastly, on January 7th of this year, an overwhelming vote took place of both conservatives and liberals in Canada, and they passed Bill C-4, a federal bill that amends Canada's criminal code, creating new criminal offenses related to conversion therapy. That is, if you witness to an LGBTQ and they get saved or change their sexual persuasion, you've now broken the law in Canada. The new offenses include knowingly causing another person to undergo therapy, conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy, and receiving financial or material benefit from conversion therapy. Prison term, you witness to a homosexual in Canada, they report you two to five years in prison. Demonically crazy. Insane rules, evil rules that make no sense to anyone. Thousands of pastors went to um, federal courts around Canada last week and were protesting that. We're just this close to that here in our country. Sometimes believers do not understand why God commands us to do certain things. I've run into this in my experience. And sometimes believers consider some of the rules of the Bible as nonsense, like the Canadian rules. A standard question I've received over the years, at times, from believers in and out of our churches, why would I have to do that crazy thing? You know, when the Bible commands us to obey certain things. God doesn't expect or necessarily demand that we understand it. We have to understand what the command is, but you're just called to obey. Right? So if you can't keep a cow as a pet in Newfoundland as a Christian, you don't keep a cow as a pet. Right? And if it's illegal to lock your doors in Church Hill, Manitoba, as a Christian, you shouldn't lock your car doors. Right? We don't have the right to question the merits of a biblical command just because we may not understand it. We don't have the right to think that some rules that seem crazy in the Bible are to be relegated into insane Canadian rules that I don't need to obey. 
You know, the philosophy of Americans in this country is, I'm not obeying something, number one, I don't agree with, or number two, that I don't understand. That is American society right now. That's the foundation of where we have revolution fomenting under the surface. As one writer said recently through Reuters news agency in Europe last week, political analyst, the next election of the United States may be its last as a democracy. If Trump runs, there will be outright civil war. We don't have the right to take the Bible and relegate commands I either don't like or don't understand to I don't need to obey. There's four major Bible rules that I've been rebuked by over the years by fellow pastors. Four major rules that I've been told I shouldn't teach that are in the Bible. By Bible-believing pastors. In your mind, see if you can guess what they are. Don't say it out loud, but I'll give them to you. Years ago, I had a pastor sitting in this congregation as I was teaching on divorce or remarriage. And I teach what the Bible says, plainly, categorically, there are no grounds for divorce or remarriage. He came up to me afterward and said, you keep teaching that, people will leave your church. An interesting answer. Instead of saying it's unbiblical, he just said, if you keep teaching that, people will leave your church. I've had more than a few people in our church here tell me that if I and the elders keep teaching church discipline, number two, that people will quit this church. I had a pastor years ago who knew my position on giving was grace giving. He believed in the Old Testament tithe for today. He told me years ago, if you keep teaching grace giving, grace giving means you give as the Lord purposes in your heart to give, he says you'll destroy the financial basis of your church. And of course the infamous, the infamous teaching that I've done over the years on music. If you don't have contemporary music, John, the church will die. Now, are you getting the understanding, the philosophy behind those criticisms? It isn't, and it hasn't been over the years, that you're teaching wrong. It's that if you teach that, your church will close. What is the implication of that? The implication is it is more important to keep the church open than to teach truth. Right? So, you, you know, John, if you teach that about giving, you're, you're going to lose the giving. Oh, okay, so if, even though it's biblical, I should stop that. That's the implication, because it's all about numbers, right? Do you understand that pastoral leadership, predominantly in this country, is not first and foremost committed to truth, but committed to numbers and money? One of those that I gave at my ordination was the grace-giving doctrine, and the pastor said that out loud. You teach that, then you're one of the 40 pastors that were sitting there. You teach that, then your church will financially crash. 
So I, as the beginning rebel that I've always been, said back to these esteemed individuals in front of me, oh, so then it's more about money than truth. And I got some angry looks that day. It's a wonder I didn't get ordained. But fortunately, I bribed them all before the ordination service, and they felt guilty and felt they needed to continue on and vote me in. You see, there is a philosophy even in the pews that I would do that, but it would cost me too much. Right? Yeah. There comes a point when conviction actually reveals itself to be preference. A conviction is something you would die over. A preference is something that you will, I'll obey it unless there's a certain point it costs me too much. And there's a fifth category. I said four, but there is a fifth one, and it relates to 2 Timothy 2, that I've been rebuked over the years and even called a heretic for. More than a few believers, rebel believers over the years, have considered it nonsense that I spend so much time in this pulpit confronting sin and preaching on repentance. Even though that's our series where we're at in Titus chapter 2, and it's talked about throughout the Bible, if you continue to preach against sin to believers... and demand repentance for conversions, you will have less conversions, and people will say you're negative and will leave. Again, it's not about truth. It's about the survival of the church locally at all costs. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare. And Christians have long since in this country compromised biblical convictions out of fear. Fear of losing their church, their money, their jobs, their relationships, their safety. Fear drives everything. Fear is the foundation of compromise. Oh, that we would do what we call, are called to do as Christians because the Bible says it, but that's something that's in the Constitution, but frankly, when we get down to the fine print in the contract, I will obey the Bible unless it costs me something I hold too dearly. So, we're called to constantly and continually and viciously renounce sins, especially in our pulpits. But it's rarely done. It would cost too much. You do understand then the difference between a conviction and a preference. I would write that down under the introduction. A conviction is something that must be obeyed no matter what. A preference is something that I choose to obey unless it costs me. We are not commanded to obey preferences in the Bible. We are commanded to obey commands. I know a lot of Christians who have compromised their Christian faith and have done it many years ago because of the cost of staying true to the word. 
things that aren't open for debate. The renunciation of sin is not open for debate. Look at 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, Paul talking to Timothy in verse 24. Says the Lord's slave, bond servant is a ridiculous translation. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome. He's referring to leaders as slaves, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. First thing they're called to do is with gentleness. Gentleness means not. Um, oh, I'm so sorry I said that. I hope you're not offended. Uh, gentleness is power under control. It is. Teaching without being out of control. It has nothing to do with lack of passion. It has to do with lack of rage, predominantly. It's like a strong horse, bit and bridle, controls the horse with the reins, and that powerful horse is controlled. That's what gentleness is. And looky, looky there in verse 25, what we are called to do as leaders correcting. Is that not negative? Yes? But you can just hear the chorus of pastors and leaders, the ghosts that have walked these hallowed halls down through my 35 years, and the refrain is so clear. You hear it? But if you keep doing that, people will leave. Something about verse 25 also assumes, Paul assumes something very negative, but it's true. You will always have people in opposition. This is in the church. They're not going to like what they hear, especially correction. Some are unsaved. Some are in rebellion. If perhaps, we don't know when God will grant repentance, do we? We didn't know when it would be for Chris or if it would be, but it happened. So verse 25, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Is he referring to believers or unbelievers? Is a debate back and forth that we can disagree on. I am of the conviction that this is a pastoral epistle written for churches and it's predominantly referring to those who claim to be saved but are acting like the devil in the church carnal Christians or fake Christians, but so as it is, claiming to be believers. We still need granted repentance. This is what you should pray for backslidden family and friends, that God would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth as they receive Christ, so they walk. And so we need to pray that repentance would reactivate. It can actually happen to a believer that they repent of their sins at conversion, then over time fail to do it as the years go on. They lose it. Notice also that repentance leads to the knowledge of the truth, which means you can't understand the Bible as a believer if you're not repenting. And therein lies the opposition. When a Christian stops repenting, they start rebelling against the knowledge of the truth. And in their minds that are corrupted by unrepentant sin, they say to themselves, what is being taught to me is not right. Because they've lost the ability to know the truth experientially. Knowledge there is experiential knowledge. You can't experience truth and submit to it without repentance. So, one of the big five, if you keep preaching against sin, you will lose people. If I don't preach against sin, if we do not, as a congregation, continually grow in repentance, 
We can't experience truth in our lives. Deception grows. Lies grow. Blindness grows. And what happens when a believer or an unbeliever, I assume these are professed believers here, um, in verse 26, what happens is Paul gets to the root issue. They've lost their minds in verse 26. They need to repent to know the truth so that they may come to their senses. They've lost an ability to understand and grasp. It's like they're in a spiritual coma. This is the unmoving character of hearts that sit under the word of God that are not brought under conviction. So there's a sequence here, verse 25. God grants, gives repentance. We must pray for that. For those that are wayward in the churches, if they don't repent, number one, they can't experience the truth. Number two, verse 26, their minds are insane. They have lost their senses spiritually. And now they become snared by Satan. Yes, a believer, through this process of negation, of sin confrontation, can end up ensnared by the devil. It doesn't say possessed by the devil, but trapped by the devil, held captive by him to do his will. I believe that it is definitely the case that there is demonic activity in every Bible-believing church and that demonic activity holds many professed believers captive to do his will. Again, you can say, well, this is unbelievers, but go back to verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must be able to what? Teach. Where is he teaching? Churches. Ah, but too much about sin will poison the broth. All rain without sunshine creates a flood. Is that like Hezekiah chapter 4? Pithy little aphorisms we love. And John, all sunshine without rain creates a desert. That's nice. Didn't know that one. Trying to be gentle. And say with horse reined self-control, that's nuts. And that drags us over to Titus chapter 2. Do you have certain rules that you don't like in the Bible? I suppose we all do. Do you have your big list or little list? And you just don't understand why you have to obey. Kind of like having to unlock my doors in Manitoba. Well, it's really irrelevant whether you understand why you have to obey. You're just supposed to, I'm supposed to obey. There's many things in God's will that Sue and I could say in our lives over 35 years, we don't understand at all. And we will not till we're in heaven. There's many things about leadership ministry in a local church that we are completely perplexed by. 
But we're not called to understand everything. Just to obey. So are you. It's obey, not comma, but. It's obey. It's not, but it will cost me so much. No, it's obey. And if you and I can't do that, we're snared by Satan. We can't repent of things we refuse to obey. Titus chapter 2 is a passage where he's dealing with various age groups that I've explained the context in past sermons. But then he comes down to for all groups in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's Roman numeral 1 in your note sheet. We finished that. Salvation is offered to all, not just to the elect. Once again, proving reformed teaching is wrong. I love to get a good laugh reading reformers trying to re-explain verse 11. It's not all men. All men actually refers just to those that are elect. Okay, how do you arrive at that? Because my, my theology determines my interpretation. You do understand it's backwards, right? Your interpretation, unbiased, is supposed to produce your theology. But, be that as it may. And then he narrows it down, showing once again that he's not referring to the elect with all men, because then he says in verse 12, instructing all men to deny ungodliness? No. Instructing who? Us. Thus, a contradistinction between all men in verse 11 and us in verse 12. Salvation is offered to all unbelievers on the planet. Sorry, Reformed. Jump off the cliff. You're wrong. And then in verse 12, instructing only believers are to be taught the word to deny godliness and worldly desires because only we have the Spirit. And to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. See, godliness, the marks of godliness. And number three is where we're at. The first one is instruction. We are instructed, mark number one, to sit more and more under the instruction of the word of God, which, of course, the American rebellious evangelical church has decided to reverse that and sit under instruction less. Thus, the death of so many Sunday services in churches around this country. And then mark number two, us, shows that we're to be instructed corporately together Mark number two, the godly believer loves fellowship together in the body of Christ, especially to be instructed. That's what he's after. And then number three, the instruction is towards. Here's the direction of the instruction. First, to deny godliness. Notice under mark number three in your note sheet. It points believers to denial. Number two is primarily confrontational and negative. Letter A under number two, fill it in. Bible teaching is predominantly meant to confront sin in a believer's life in order to get him to renounce it. Fill that in. In order to get him to renounce it. A stop sign doesn't mean you can roll through without touching your brakes. Are we all clear on that? I don't understand why there are so many stop signs on the east side. Amen. I was a bad boy coming home last night. 107th and Avenue N. Rounded the corner without touching my brakes. And a police car was right behind me. 
I started speaking in tongues. I'm settled today, Anything to get out of the tickets. Mercy triumphed over justice. He kept going one way, I kept going another. Preaching is supposed to confront sin. You don't like stop signs? Too bad. Stop. You think there are too many stop signs? Too bad. Stop. You don't like so much preaching on sin? Too bad. The apostle in verse 12 says this is what instruction is to do. Don't like it? Think it's crazy? Then roll through the word of God. Comes first. Denying ungodliness. Now denial doesn't mean like Somebody confronts you on lying and you say, I deny it. I didn't do it. So denial doesn't mean I didn't do it. Denial is our net am I in your notes. Write it in. It means to strongly renounce something. So denial is a very bad interpretation of the Greek word our net am I in verse 12. Because in our culture, denying something means to deny, to deny reality, to deny doing something wrong. But rather the denial that in our English means here would mean to severely renounce something. Like today I'm denying myself the hard lemon at the car wash. Self-deprivation that it means. So denial doesn't mean denying reality or denying that you're a sinner. It means I'm denying myself something that I would want. Here it means to renounce. Underneath the dotted line, what the Bible considers a major issue for each and every believer is seen by most as really not that big a deal. What the Bible considers a major issue for each and every believer is seen by most as really not that big a deal. And how do we know? The battle with sin is rarely talked about by believers. What do believers talk about? Just examine prayer meetings. Health, job, fun, money, things, relationships. That's all talked about. When was the last time we ever heard, even in our own prayer meeting, any prayer meeting? It's very rare, probably more in ours than in most churches. Somebody's saying, I've been really failing with sin and battling with sin. Please pray that God would give me more of a repentant heart. There used to be a man who was a wicked, godless apostate that attended here many decades ago who's dead now and he fumed in the pews for years sitting under my teaching and every time I confronted sin he would race to the back and as he went through the line out went my hand he'd shake it and with a look of rage in his face every single time he would say these infamous words to me Now, pastor, you have stopped preaching, and you've gone to meddling. Implication is, stop meddling in the affairs of Christians. 
You want to keep your doors locked in Newfoundland, go right ahead and get the ticket. And if you are going to go to the wall in your heart and say, I hate constant negative preaching against sin, then simply renounce verse 12. Whether you like it or not, instruction is a divine calling on a teacher in a church to meddle with you. Please, as I told my boss the other day, don't shoot the messenger. I know it feels good, but it's not my book that I wrote. God wrote this. Did he not? Instructing is piduel, continuous, durative instruction over and over to deny what? Ungodliness and worldly desires. Next time, we will cover those eight essential facts of life concerning Bible instruction and its relation to sin renunciation. Thank you, Father, for your wonderful word. Stop sign means stop, not roll through. I forgot that last night. I can tell myself all I want that it's not fair. I could have told the police officer it's not fair. I'm still to obey. Instruction is meant to confront sin. Case closed. Either we obey or we get angry. In Jesus' name, amen.